Let's go back to our passage, if we could, please. We'll be there just momentarily. I want to remind you we're in the third missionary journey, the Apostle Paul. And uh, I want to just show you the map real quickly. I think it may be helpful to you to kind of get the idea of what's taking place here. Uh, he begins there in Antioch. This is the third time. Uh, the longest missionary journey was the second one, but this is uh, definitely a, uh, a long journey. He begins in Antioch, and he'll go on to Tarshish. That's his hometown. He seemed to stop there several times and no doubt had converts in that area. Then to Iconium and Lystra, that is kind of where he was uh, beaten and left for dead and stoned that first missionary journey. The second missionary journey, he kind of uh, went through there again, picked up Timothy. This is the third and here's where he spent most of the longest time that I know about that he spent in his missionary journey was three years, and that was to the Ephesian leaders there in Ephesus. That's Asia, modern-day Eurasia, or Turkey. Went up to Troas, and then Troas into Neapolis, Philippi, and of course that was the church we learned how to give to world evangelism as their model, Philippi, and Amphilus. And then Apollonia, and then, of course, down to Thessalonica. These are churches of Macedonia, these churches that we see there. Then he went down to Greece and to Athens and over to Corinth. And uh, quite frankly, he could have left right there and gone back down in there, but he is, of course, going and he's collecting funds. He told them, I'm going to come back and I'm going to collect funds. And this was the faith promise commitment they were making to take to Jerusalem for those people there. And so that's why later on he will, he'll go through these churches again, and uh, he makes his way back. I, he did find out that there was, a, there was an assassination attempt against him that caused him to go back up through the northern route to get away from that. I think had, they had people waiting for him, most likely, in the southern ports to kill him. And so he went up, and he does meet up with his men there in Assos and in Troas, and uh, there he is going to go to Metellini, and then to Chios, and then to Miletus. Miletus is where? It's about 30 miles, 35 miles from Ephesus. That's where he will have that pastor's conference with those Ephesian elders, and he'll tell them, number one, take care of yourself. Number two, feed and lead the flock. Number three, uh, expect there will be doctrinal challenges coming from without and within, and there will be divisions that are going to, Satan work on division, and he tells them that. He also reminds him in that passage to trust the Lord. I commend you to God and his word and reminds him. And then he challenges him in three areas that are probably unusual. He says, I want you as pastors, he said, watch out for materialism and emphasis and thinking about money all the time. He said, make sure you work hard, be diligent, and uh, covet no man's gold or silver, and then learn to give aggressively. It's more blessed to give than to receive. And then he knelt down beside the boat and he prayed with those, uh, with those pastors. And they cried and they kissed him and they hugged him and, as they would do in the Eastern culture, thinking they would never see his face again. Many people believe they did get to, he got to go back there one more time in between his first and second imprisonment. I don't know that to be the case. But he gave that pastor's conference there in Miletus. Chapter 21, he'll leave Miletus and he'll go to Kos, he'll go to there and then he'll make his his little ship over to, to Rhodes. Some of these places, they had good winds. Some of them, it slowed him down a little bit. And remember, he's got the time, click, the time clock in his head. He wants to be in, uh, in Jerusalem 
for, Pen for Passover and Pentecost. He wants to be there when all the other Jews from around the world, the Jewish men are there. He wants to be there because he wants them to hear the testimony of the seven men that are with him, and he wants to give them the financial benefit, the benefit that they have collected over the year that he promoted that. So he's going there, and he's going to go down to Tyre, and that's what happens in chapter 21. That's where he is going to, to uh, meet some friends there. And uh, then Caesarea, that's where he's going to meet Philip, the evangelist. And then he eventually will go down into, back up to Jerusalem and there meet uh, the, uh, the, uh, the church at Jerusalem. Real quickly, I don't, I'm not going to take a long time this evening, but let's look over the passage, and then I want to make a couple points about family relationships. I believe there's, there's just very few places in the New Testament and in the book of Acts quite as family-oriented as this particular chapter. Let's look at verse number one, can we please? And of course, he's, he's going to just tell you what I've just now told you. He's going to Kos and to Rhodes and to Patara, verse number one, find the ship. He goes into Phoenicia, and we went aboard and set forth. And then, of course, he, uh, he took, they took on some more, some more material, verse number four. And finding disciples, we tarried there seven days, who said to Paul through the Spirit that he should not go up into Jerusalem. I'll speak maybe a little bit more about that another time. It looks like to me, and of course there's a debate about this, um, whether Paul should have gone to Jerusalem. Because when he goes to Jerusalem, he's not going to be a free man. He goes there, even though he goes through a vow and tries to avoid the Jewish, they, they, they jump him, and then the Roman police rescue him. He goes into their barracks, and he preaches a message. They get even more mad, and then he will stay in jail until... He is in uh, the Roman, in, the, in house arrest in Rome. And of course, the Bible tells us here two times in this passage of Scripture that when he was with the disciples those seven days uh, there, they, through the Spirit, told him, don't go to Jerusalem. Now, if they gave their advice and said, don't go to Jerusalem, I, I think it's their advice. But it seems like the Lord is telling us that the Spirit of God was giving him an option, saying it's not time to go to Jerusalem. But Paul and many of us are hard-headed. How many of you would fall into that category from time to time? You got something in your mind and you're trying to do it, and these disciples, through the Spirit of God, say, you know, I don't think you're supposed to go to Jerusalem. And he brushed it off and said, all right, God bless you guys. We love you. He prayed with them and he took off. Then he goes down to Philip the evangelist and he visits at his house and stays at his home. And while he's there, Agabus, who is a man who is already known to have an insight with the Lord. He has prophesied a great famine in years gone by, and now he is someone, and he comes and visits Philip, and he puts, he takes, uh, he takes uh, Paul's belt off. And it's probably not a leather belt. It could have been. It could have been a cloth belt, but he has a, 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 a girdle, is what they call it. It's a belt. He takes his belt off of him. And he takes and he wraps his hands, and then he brings down and wraps his feet. And he stands in the living room, if you will, of Philip the Evangelist and said, the guy who owns this belt is going to be enslaved the way I'm enslaved here. And he says, and he's a spirit-filled man. So if he goes down to Jerusalem, it's going to happen to him. And they begin to say, look, they're telling me that the people up in the, in the other court told you not to go. The Spirit of God's saying no. And now this has happened. You shouldn't go, Paul. And that's when he gives this great appeal. Why mean you 
to break my heart. And because I'm not only ready to go to Jerusalem, I'm ready to die there. If that's what it is, I'll just die there. I'm ready. He was passionate about it. He was pressed in the spirit to go there, and he got over it. But looks at to me, the spirit of God, and we'll find out in eternity future. I may be absolutely wrong. I've been wrong many times, and I may be wrong again. But I think that we'll find out in eternity future, God had a different plan for Paul if he would have listened. That's my, that's my thought. And by the way, can I just tell you, men of God are men, are men at best. Remember Paul got in an argument with, Paul, with Barnabas? I think probably Paul was wrong. <laughs> Paul should have taken John Mark on the trip and just been, but he was, he was, he was dogged. He was, he was hard-headed. And that, that doesn't mean he's a bad person. He's, he's a maximum Christian. I don't think you'll find a better Christian than Paul. But even the best of us men are men at best. I think about many of our servants of Christ who have pastored this church or many great men of God down through the years. They're tremendous men of God, but you know, they're not perfect. And the Bible does not tell you looking unto Jack Hiles, looking unto Jack Scott, looking unto John. It never tells you to do that. Matter of fact, in the very beginning, middle of their Bible, it's better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. Now, we follow them as they follow Christ. If they take a left turn, we just keep going for Christ. If they struggle, we, we thank God for what they did. You know, sometimes people, when people mess up, they're just like, oh, I can't believe you would even give any credit or do that, or can't believe you'd read a book or listen. Let me just tell you something. Uh, David was not pure his whole life. Would we understand that? David failed. Matter of fact, it's almost one of the things that just are highlight David. David and Bathsheba. I still like Psalms 23. <laughs> yeah, I still like, I still like those, 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 those things he wrote. The sweet psalmist is real. Hey, how about Solomon? I mean, wow, the wisest man ever. You know what? Solomon became a wise fool. He married 700 wives for Pete's sake. 300 concubines. He was a moral, decrepit pervert. At the same time, you know what? I still kind of like reading Proverbs. I think there's some things that are inspired by the Word of God. Ecclesiastes, his, his swan song after he'd messed up his life and realized everything without God is under the sun and it's a vanity. Only time you're going to do anything that's going to matter for God is going to be above the sun. It's going to be where God is and seeing things God's way. You know, sometimes it's the case, but you know the Bible tells us that here... here I wonder what would be different about Paul. And I, once again, I probably have people a lot smarter than me who will argue about that, and I'm really not interested in arguing about it. I just kind of think the Spirit of God is telling Paul, if you just wait, there could be other, other victories, other opportunities, and you won't have to be in a jail cell. Now, a lot of good things happen. God, God will take our second best. Uh, but I don't want that. I don't want that for you, and I don't want that for me. I'd like to, to live in the perfect will of God, not have to him to make adjustments because of my stubbornness, my disobedience. And I think that the Apostle Paul, and of course God did use him greatly. And once again, I may be wrong on my assessment of that. But it's interesting, God's telling him that. But tonight I want to talk to you just for a few moments about just visualizing those men who brought their wives and their children and then Philip, the evangelist. This is years later, maybe, maybe as much as two decades later, Maybe when he moved to, to Samaria with his wife into the Samaria, he got out of it, Jerusalem, left his home there, went to Samaria. Those little girls might have been just little infants. 
They may have not even been born yet, or some of them not born, when he moved in there. This is a long time later, and we find Philip still being faithful to the Lord. I don't know about you, but that impresses me. All of us, all the way. All of us finishing strong. But he had four girls, and these four girls were known and forever be known in the Scriptures as people who were pure virgins, and they prophesied. They were mouthpieces for the Lord. They gave forth God's truth. This is before there was a Bible as we have it today. But they were used of God to prophesy. They did not prophesy in the church house. I don't think that would be a contradiction to, to what the, the 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 13 speak in 14. However, they were, they were spirit-filled girls. And here's a guy who was chosen to be a servant and had raised four godly girls and even had the, 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 the prophet come. I want to just give you, with that, with that backdrop in mind, just give you four words to consider. Those of you who have family, or those of you who have a family, let me tell you four things I think will be very helpful to you. Number one, be sincere. If you want to raise children that uh, will honor the Lord, and by the way, I'm not here to throw rocks at them, and all of us have, have situations we wish things could be different. And if our children are not exactly right, we certainly have given them a lot of reasons. If my kids don't turn right, I've given them many reasons. Now, none of it will be justifiable in the eyes of God. However, I've, given, I've not been a perfect dad. I've failed my kids so many times. But one thing I think would be very good, there's nothing that frustrates a child any more than insincerity and hypocrisy. The Bible says, fathers, provoke not your children to wrath. You know what makes a child angry? Is when they see me say one thing and do another thing. That's what makes them angry. When they see hypocrisy and inconsistency in my life. You want to raise a family with the Lord's help, and all of us need the Lord's help. Let me, let me encourage you, capitalize on that concept of sincerity. Micah chapter 6, he has showed the old man what is good and what the Lord doth require thee, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. Learning to be sincere, men of integrity, is extremely important. You don't have to be flashy, but you can be faithful. You can be genuine. You don't have to be complicated. You can be simple and sincere, and you're going to find your kids will appreciate and respect you. When you make a mistake, Daddy, Mama, fess up. Admit it. Say, you know what? I didn't say the right thing there. I didn't, I didn't respond right. God, forgive me for that. That is something I should not have done. No, if I do that, I'll lose my authority. No, no, you'll gain your authority. You'll, you'll gain more respect. Children need desperately three, three things in their lives. Number one, they need to know they're loved. They need affection. And that is probably 60 to 70% of child rearing is convincing your child that they're loved. Most people do, you know, Brother Hiles would say years ago, no one would ever go off into sin if they were convinced of one thing. Someone loved them. An adult loved them. And someone cared about them. And the truth of the matter is that kids need affection. Number two, they need direction. Need somebody to help them make decisions. When they're loved, they're much more, much more usually receptive to that. When you don't feel loved, then you don't want to listen to someone. If people don't trust you, and they don't trust me, they're not going to trust what I tell them more, more than not. Number three, they need correction. And mamas and daddies, don't be afraid to give correction to your child. They need it. And the harder you work at it when they're little, listen, when those kids are small, 
Spend the most time you can from birth to five years old, if at all possible. And help them to learn to obey, learn to submit, learn to be respectful. They don't have to even know how to talk, and they can learn what no means. Tell them that's not right. It's never fun for them to throw fits. never fun. Deal with that early on. They won't even remember anything you tell them. They won't remember a single act of discipline that you give them in that time frame for the most part. But they can learn to obey. They can learn to be respectful. And so many times we'll turn our kids over when they're young, and we'll miss that window of time where they learn so many things that set the trajectory of their life. But they need to be loved, they need to be directed, and they need to be corrected. This is important. And don't relinquish that. Men, do not relinquish the, the, spiritual, the spiritual influence of your home. That's your job. You may not be the best Christian. I'm not the best adult in the Wilkerson home. I'm not the best Christian in the Wilkerson home. I think, Linda, it takes us harder to be her than it is to be me in our home. She's amazing. But I'm the leader. I'm a leader, and I need, to, I need to love her, and I need to be the spiritual leader in my home. And uh, God needs to help me with that. And I hope you'll pray for me. Pray for my kids, bless her heart. Number one, be sincere. Number two, I see a theme in, in the scriptures, and I think it's steadfast. Just keep being faithful. Learn to say, you know what? We're not missing. We're going to go to every service. Uh, you don't have to listen to me if you don't want to, but I do believe there's something about that. Being faithful. I am so glad. I got saved on a Sunday night before I could drive myself anywhere. And I came. You know, I've heard, I heard people say this, you know. I, uh, you know, I was a drug addict when I was a kid. I was drugged to church and drugged back to church and drugged here and drugged back and forth. Well, I, that's my story. But I heard a lot of Sunday morning junior churches and a lot of Sunday morning Sunday schools and a lot of Sunday morning messages before I ever got convicted of sin. And it just happened to be that I got convicted of my sin on a Sunday night. And I would have never been there with moms and dads who are just going on Sunday morning only. Don't do that. Get your kids out there and let them hear. Well, that's the big church and they have a hard time sitting still. You never know what's going on. I think when Linda got saved, her mom and dad were not, they were only Sunday morning Christians at the time. And of course, John and, and uh, John, John Francis and Linda and Jane and Brenda, but, the, but they would go Sunday morning. But one night, and, 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 brother, and because her mom is deaf, her dad would come and he would sign always on the front of the pew and he would sign for his wife so she could understand the message. But he decided one night to come on a Sunday night to church. And that Sunday night that he went, Linda went with him because she didn't want to go to bed. And so she went with him and said, Dad, can I go with you? And she went. And that night at the invitation, God got a hold of Linda's heart. And the pastor's wife led her to Christ. Now they sat in the back. And she walked forward, and, and, and the pastor wife led her to the Lord on a Sunday night. Think something about steadfastness, Amen. being faithful, being counted on. You know, just, just say, you know, here's where we stand. I'm going to be steadfast, unmovable. Be sincere, be steadfast. Number three, I want to give you this thought and, and just and ask to supplicate or pray. You know, none of us are all we ought to be, but if, there's, if, if it's true what, uh, what was told of us by John R. Rice, all failures are prayer failures. If there's anything you could say, man, I want the Wilkerson home to improve on, and God could come up here and tell you tonight, it would be prayer. I know it. And I'm asking God to help me with that. I want to I be more genuine, but I also, and I want to be more steadfast, but I also want to be a, pray, a praying dad, a praying husband, 
a praying Christian, and you can do it. You may not be a preacher. You may not be able to be known for it, but you know what? You can be a prayer warrior. Every once in a while when someone passes away, and we've done hundreds of funerals since I've been your pastor in nine and a half years, and everyone who passed away, I feel, I feel sad, and I feel grief, and I, boy, I hate they go. But there's a few people that I really don't want them to go. It's because they pray. It may be many years since they drove a bus or taught a Sunday school class, but I tell you, these people pray. And I oftentimes say, Lord, please keep them alive because I think they do a lot, of, a lot of good things right here. Some of we think that praying is a waste, is a waste of time. When we do it in church. Some of you, you struggle with that time. That five, six, seven minutes seems like 50 minutes. It's like, oh, man, this is long this time. You look up there and it's been five minutes. When we come to pray, we think, oh, you know, we could be doing all these other things. We could be listening to a song. We could be listening to pastor preach. We could be doing something else or learning something else. We're okay with that. But with that time of prayer, it seems like it's, it's like, oh, we're really kind of wasting our time. By the way, who's given us those thoughts? And I've shared this with you. I love praying. I'm thankful for the, ac- the access I have to God. And I have some of the sweetest memories of my life are, are when I'm praying. But I'm just telling you, it's not always the easiest thing for me to do. And, you know, sometimes I can watch a ball game for two hours. And my goodness, even my team loses. I don't even think of anything except for the ball game. I get on my knees to pray for five minutes, and someone, someone says to my mind, your car's dirty. I think the, I think the grass needs to be growed, mowed. You might want to watch, it go, watch the grass grow, too. I don't know. Hey, you need to write that note. You have written that note. You were going to do it all week long. You didn't write that note yet. You probably ought to go visit that person. I mean, anything in the world can come to my mind to get me to stop my communication with the Father. Have you ever had that problem, or is that just me? But I think we're going to have homes that are going to glorify God. They need a daddy and a mama that pray. Need a grandma and a grandpa. Need an aunt and an uncle. Need a brother and sister. You older brothers and sisters, I just I challenge you. Uh, before you get goofy and try to tease and tease and tease and and take advantage, you might want to make sure that you you, you go into your your brother and sister's room at night and pray with them. You just say, hey, listen, let's pray. When you get in the car going to school, somebody the older want to say, let's pray. Let them hear you pray. Prayer is important. Sincerity is important. Steadfastness, these are things that are important. And we could spend a whole message on it, but our time is up. But I'd also say, you know, the interesting thing about Philip was known as a soul winner. And and I'm studying this a little bit. You, You evaluate with me. One thing that I think is probably missing in many, if you go visiting to churches, and it's not what it ought to be here, but, boy, we need, we need to continue to stoke the fires of getting the gospel to people. And I think when we learn to pray and we're steadfast in our, in our uh, church attendance, in our Bible reading, in our prayer, in our giving, uh, all those things, when we're steadfast, when we're sincere inside of our hearts, we'll probably will be more apt to be a soul winner. But this is something all of us can do. Say, Pastor, it's been a while since I've led someone to Christ. Why don't you make that a matter of prayer? Say, God, please, give me one soul. Let me be able to influence someone for eternity. I was thinking, I got a picture from one of our sweet ladies this week, and she had witnessed this lady several times. 
And she said, Pastor, it was beautiful. The other night, they got saved. And she sent me a picture of both of them. And I thought that was a wonderful testimony. Saw people get saved this morning. People got saved yesterday and this week. And, and it's wonderful to see that happen. Uh, Mama, give your kids a soul-winning mom. Give your, give your kids, sir, a soul-winning dad. Give your husband and wife a soul-winning servant. And you say, Pastor, I'm not all that good at that. You make it a matter of prayer, and God will bring someone. He's the one who saves everybody anyway, right? He can help us. Four concepts I just want to encourage you. Be a good soul winner. Ask God for that. Be steadfast. Be sincere. And be prayerful. Be a praying Christian. I believe we'll, we'll raise better kids by accident, trying to focus on those spiritual attributes, and we can't on purpose reading 17 books and, and articles on how to be a good parent. God's going to help us with those things. Let's pray together, can we?